We're going to go to the Lord straight in prayer and jump into our text. I'm so glad that you're here tonight. Uh, it's just such a, an exciting time to be in God's Word. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, thank you for your Word. Thank you for what you're going to do as you speak to us in it now. Please open up our hearts. Remove every barrier, physical, spiritual, emotional, whatever. Remove them all. That tonight you would do your work and you would do it on each of us that you've intended. You've ordained for us to be here tonight. In doing so, Lord, have your way, we pray. We commit this to you. Pray you would be blessed. Have your way, Lord, we, God. we pray. And may your Holy Spirit come upon me, God. Immerse me that you would be seen. Come upon me that you would do your work through me and speak to each one of us individually where we need to be spoken to tonight. We commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I say tonight as would any, please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true because I say so, search the Scriptures, let the Bible have the final say. We are now moving into the second portion of Joshua. Now, the first portion of Joshua, in a simple sense, is a whole bunch of battles. Joshua goes to the center of, uh, of what we know today as Israel. And as he goes through that, he splits it in two. And then from there, then, takes on the kings of the south and the kings of the north. That's basically what we've seen. And we could easily look at it as battle upon battle, or we could look at it as victory upon victory. And in our lives, there are times where it seems like it's battle upon battle. The crazy part is God is always bringing us victory, but we tend not to see it because we, all we tend to see is that the inconvenience and discomfort of the battle seems to weigh greater than the victory and the fruit that God has wrought. Now, clearly, what God does is going to be better than the battle, or it wouldn't have been worth the fight in the first place. But we've looked at 11 chapters, and it's been fight, 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 fight. And for good reason. Because if we are going to take and live the life God intended, there will be battles to be fought. There will be battles of the flesh. There will be battles in the spiritual world. There will be battles against the world system. But in the end of it all, God has called us and granted us and promised us victory. Now, in the simplest sense, Joshua has gone in and taken basically almost every major city. The little things, the suburbs and so forth, are still yet to be cleaned up. There's a lot of ground to be gained. But the big things, the big things have been taken down for the most part. The first 11 chapters then is the ground gained. What we have really now in the next few chapters, 12 through 14, which is my goal to cover tonight, is in essence an inventory of the land as it's been conquered. And the reason we need to have this inventory, it's a little bit more technical, so we might not necessarily be drawn to it, because it's a whole lot of names. And we could definitely develop those from the perspective of what they mean in the Hebrew. Some of them would definitely be funny. Some of them would be very poignant. But for the sake of our first time through Joshua here in London, it would be important first for us to get the simple and clear overview. And this is what it is. Basically, the land gets surmised and inventoried, all the land that's been conquered, because it's going to be divvied up now to nine and a half tribes. Three and a half or two and a half tribes are actually inheriting land on the east side of the Jordan. And we can even show the, the maps if we would, and we'll have us read in our own Bibles. Thanks, guys. Just so that we can kind of look. But basically, once the land is accounted for, and what land is yet to be accounted for, then the land starts getting divvied up. And it basically works like this. Tonight we'll actually see 
divvying up that land on the east, that two and a half tribes that didn't want to go past to the west. Now, beyond that, then in 15 through 17, then the western two and a half tribes that actually showed up to get the land will get their land as well. And then in chapters 18 and 19, the remaining tribes that really didn't even show up to receive the land will get theirs. Chapters 20 and 21, the Levite land. Because remember, the Levites couldn't own land. They had to only be allotted for them to just sort of occupy. And then finally, in the last three chapters, is our preparation for the book of Judges. That's really how the rest of the book goes. So the inventory is necessary because otherwise it makes a little less sense what land we're divvying up. But in our own lives, it is important to recognize, even as we sort of take a walk through these three chapters, it is important to recognize that it is important for us to take inventory sometimes. To take that inventory, to set side, time aside, to just look and go, what ground has God gained? Especially when what seems like the, the period you're in is a period of a great deal of fights. The battle's over, whatever it is. We don't even see that in every battle we're supposed to be gaining ground. All we see is that there's battles and we just don't want to lose any. But those times when it does seem like it's just coming hard and heavy and hot at you, it's a really good time to take a look and go, let's just take a look and review the battles God's already won in my life so that I can have more confidence as I start to look at the battles that will still be ahead of me. So look at it with me. Chapter 11, verse 23, that's our last verse of the previous chapter, sets the tone, and it's really kind of a thesis statement when it says, So Joshua took the whole land, according to all that the Lord had said to Moses, and Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel, according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested for more. And now we get more specifics. Joshua 12, 1 through 12, 6, our reference will primarily be the two kings that were taken down by Moses. And then the remainder of the chapter then, as we look at it, from 7 then to 24, will be Joshua's kings that he took down. Moses will take down two. Joshua will take down 31. That's a considerable difference. Then in the next chapter, we'll see again the land that yet is still to be gained from 13.1 to 7. And then we start divvying up the land from 13.8 to 14.5. And then we end it with this. And this is why I want to make sure we get this far if we can. Then we get to this really cool story of one of my heroes. So I can't wait to get there. And his name means dog. So there you go. What's up, dog? It's this guy right here. 12.1 says this. These are the kings of the land whom the children of Israel defeated and whose land they possessed on the other side of the Jordan. We're talking about the east towards the rising of the sun. That should do it for us. From the river Armon to Mount Hermon on the eastern Jordan plain. It's important to recognize that land today would be for the most part Jordan, as we know it as a country, and the area of southern Syria. The battle where, of course, a lot's going on right now, as we're aware. One king was Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon and lived half of Gil- I'm sorry, and ruled half of Gilead from Aror, which is in the bank of the river Ammon. To this day, it's Ammon, by the way. And from the midst of the river, even as far as the river Yabok, which is the border of the Ammonites. And the eastern plain, Jordan plain, from the Sea of Kinnerot, that's, by the way, the Sea of Galilee. Kinnerot is the word in Hebrew for, for harp, because the sea is shaped like one. As far as the Sea of Rabbah, that's the Dead Sea, or the Salt Sea. The road to Bet Yeshimot, and southward below the slopes of Pisgah. 
The other king, by the way, of, of Bashan, Og is his name. Doesn't Og just sound like a giant guy? As a matter of fact, he is. The historians that write, well, if you will, that the people who write in the Talmud, for instance, try to say that this guy was basically four meters tall. Now, or for those of us who are, might be, you know, more in inches, which, by the way, can I just roughly say, if Jesus really wanted us to go meters, there would have been just ten disciples. Anyways, uh, with inches, it was basically about 12 feet. This guy was a big guy. And it makes sense with a guy like that, you name him Og. Doesn't just sound like a perfect name. Well, anyways. Og, king of Bashan, in his territory, who was of the remnant of the giants, who dwelt at Ashtoroth and, in, and at Edrai. And he reigned over Marchemon, over Salcha, over Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Ma'akathites, and over half of Gilead and the border of Sichon, king of Heshbon. These Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the children of Israel had conquered. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, and Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given it as a possession to the Reubenites, the Gedites, and half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, in our first six verses, simply it said, these are, we're taking inventory of all of the kings that had been defeated by Moses. Now, it's important to note there are only two. But the two that were taken down were really big guys. However, they were still only two. And they are east of the land of Jordan. And that is important to note. So, what we're looking at then is we're looking at this land right here. And this land right here, wasn't that just super clear? That's my fault probably because I sent it this way. Uh, this area here again today is Jordan. And then this area up here is Syria. So they basically, this is the area that Moses had conquered, the two kings. And what had happened in the book of Numbers 32 is what we saw was that when they looked at this land, these two and a half tribes, two tribes, by the way, uh, for what it's with Reuben and Gad. But then what had happened um, is the tribe of Manasseh had a civil war, if you will. On one side may have been like Captain America. Yes, you get it. Well, anyways, with that in mind, half of it, what they said is, well, we're basically shepherds. And as we're shepherds, we look at this land, and this land is so green, it's so verdant. Why in the world would we want to even cross over? Now, they were very well aware of the fact that once they were going to cross over, battles were to be fought. And just the same way that if you want to live a spirit-filled life, we don't talk about crossing the Jordan from the perspective of going to heaven. Because if going to heaven is a bunch of battles, that's not the heaven I understand in Scripture. But there is this call of this, if you will, a spirit-filled life. This call of being, of that abundant life that Jesus called us to. And here is the problem. That life is only available to the godly. For those who just want to be like, well, it's available to anyone who wants to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior and walk with Him. Here's the problem. Some people just want to receive Jesus to not go to hell, and that's it. They don't really want a relationship with Him. They just basically not, don't want to go to hell. Don't expect that kind of abundant life. On the other side of it, there are those that want to follow Jesus and become like Jesus, and you'll find that's where it happens. But you know, as Paul, by the way, told, is he when he said, all who desire to live godly in Christ, will be persecuted. It doesn't even say all oh, who accomplish it. Wouldn't it have been nice if you just said that? Then at least when you were persecuted, you'd say, well, at least I'm accomplishing living godly in Christ. Which is what Jesus said in essence in Matthew 5, right? When they persecute you and say all manners of evil against you for my name's sake, for righteousness' sake. And he says, hey, in the simplest sense, cheer up, guys, you're in good company. Those guys you read in the scriptures that are so super awesome, this is the really super dumbed down vision, if you will, he says, you get, to be, you get to be with them. You're kind of with the Justice League at that point. 
But these two and a half tribes, they kind of look at this and they're like, hey, though we know there's battles to be fought over there, we really just want this land. And Moses calls their bluff. And what he says in the simplest sense is, well, I'll make a deal with you. You can have this land since we've conquered it, but you still need to fight with us. You go first. So if you really still want this land, you're going to have to go over, fight the battle for land you're not even going to live in, and then you can come back once the battles are fought. And they're like, okay, well, they, they, they actually man up and do it. So understand that when they say, well, this is the land Moses gathered, well, the land that Moses gathered can't get them over, interestingly enough, a land that wasn't called the promised land here. But it's close enough so that you get to hear the sound of the singing, if you will. And so he says, Moses did conquer those. Verse 7, now we get a little bit more technical. Look at it with me. And these are the kings of the country which Joshua and the children of Israel conquered on this side of the Jordan. This side, of course, being the west, on the west. From Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, as far as Mount Halach, and the mounts are sent to Seir, which Joshua gave to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their divisions. In the mountain country, in the lowlands, in the Jordan plain, and in the slopes, in the wilderness and in the south, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now, just to keep you guys from nodding off while I do this, Notice what he's going to do. In essence, just like you take inventory, he's going to mention something and then he's going to go one. One, of course, because you're like, well, the king of this, one of those. The king of this, one of those. So here is our little response of reading. Are you ready? I'm going to read the name. You're, you, have the, you have a real trouble. Ready? Here's your line. One. Did you get it? And if you really are going to be, if you're really on top of it, count how many times you say it. So here, ready? The king of Jericho. Wow. We got to do that again. Thank you. You're, did that hurt to say that? You're like, what? Welcome to Church of the Living Dead. The king of Jericho. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel. Wow, I'm already losing it. The king of, Jer- of Jerusalem. The king of Hebron. The king of Yarmut. The king of Lachish. The king of Eglon, the king of Gezer, the king of Debir, the king of Geder, the king of Chorma, the king of Arad, the king of Libna, the king of Adullam, the king of Makeda, the king of Bethel, the king of Tapua. Now, who names their son Tapua? It means Apple City, by the way. Uh, what's the king of that place? Somebody named the place Apple City. That makes more sense. The king of Hefer. The king of Afek. The king of Lasharon. The king of Madon. Now, some of you, I think, actually, you're trying to be the king of Madon, but that's nothing. Anyways. Uh, the king of Hazor. The king of Shimron Meron. The king of Akshaf, which means I shall be bewitched. The king of Ta'anach which means Sandy, the king of Megiddo, the king of Kadesh, the king of Yachneam in Carmel, the king of Dor in the heights of Dor, and the king of the people of Gilgal, the king of Terza. How many was that? Anyone? That close, isn't it? All the kings, 31. There you go. So, okay, why don't you think, wow, that really touched me. But don't, don't, don't miss this, because what God does in a lot of this, and this is one of the cool things, is when you get to watch, have you ever watch a movie and not, I mean, watch the sequel before the original? 
And all of a sudden you're kind of like, yeah, yeah. I've never seen any of the original Jurassic Parks. I saw the Jurassic, whatever it was now, virtual Jurassic Arcade or whatever it is now, right? Jurassic, Jurassic Plastic, whatever it is. And I'm sure it would be so much deeper had, I'm like, oh, those are like, what are those? And they're like raptors. And I'm with someone that goes, uh, duh, those are raptors. They're really important in the other movies, right? And of course, I don't see any depth in that relationship because I don't see that relationship, right? But I mean, I, I could still kind of enjoy the movie. I mean, in the end of it all, somebody almost gets eaten, darn it, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But, but, but I know that if you watch the originals, what happens is you're going, oh, 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 wow. You know, there's so much more depth to it. Most of us are familiar with a lot of the stories of the judges, for instance, Samson and Gideon. We love those stories. But those are the sequel to this. And we love the story of David and of Solomon. And we love to watch those. Oh, those are great stories. But this is the, that's a sequel. This is the actual prequel, if you will. And this is what grabs the depth in it. And this is what you might miss. God is setting things up in order. Now, in our country here, we go strong by what we call the law of precedent. Do you know what that means? It means if we ruled something one way, chances are we should rule it that way again. That's why it's so important when a new order, a new issue is being brought up that the vote is to our favor because we know that that's going to set precedent for which all their things are going to be based on in that area. So here's a precedent. How many kings did Moses take down? How many kings did Joshua take down? 31. And it'll always be that the greater victor will ultimately be the one you need to focus on. Or I'll say it this way, the lesser must fade. Now that's important. Because by the time we get to Saul of Tarsus, not Saul of Tarsus, Saul, and we see his replacement being David, do you remember when we really start seeing that? It's in a song sung. Do you remember the song? Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. Do you see the same? And the idea of it is that the lesser must decrease. And then we have John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is baptizing people for repentance, but he says that there is one who is coming after me who is greater than me because he was before me. And he says, he must increase and I must decrease. And you say, well, where's the greater victory? Here's the great part. John the Baptist is speaking prophecy. He's going, for the, all the victory of a, of a repentant, that's nothing compared to the victory of a new life. And you can get somebody to stop something. If you're mean, tough, scary, whatever, manipulative enough, you can get someone to stop a behavior. And it may feel like a victory, but it is nothing compared to a brand new life. And God is setting us up with that in a chapter you might have read through quickly. And you're going, to go, oh, just thank you, Lord, that Pastor Tony's the one reading all the names. But he did set us up with this. And the simplest of it, the lesser must decrease. Does that make sense? So we kind of get that standard set up here, and that'll move us to the next chapter. So, or might I say it again, there'll be three, again, with the three chapters, we'll each have sort of a major point. And the first one, in the simplest sense, again, is the lesser must pass. And ultimately, Moses must pass to allow Joshua in. So, here's, a, so here's step one, the lesser must pass. Give me that one. Step one, the lesser must pass. Does that make sense? Let's move on to the next chapter. 
So let me read in chapter 13. Now Joshua was old, advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, you're old. Now, I don't know about you. Now, most of I look around here. I don't think anybody really can relate to this. I don't see anyone in here where you would expect God to go, you're old. Advanced in years. I think this is interesting. Well, it's okay to be the pastor and be the older one here. But how many people in Scripture does God actually say, hey, you're old? Why in the world would God say this? Please start. Let me start with this. It's not an insult. Do you know why it's an insult now? Because we've moved away from honor and we've moved to economics. When society is based on money, only those who contribute the most to the bowl are important. By the way, that's exactly what Hitler did. He changed history by focusing on the economic aspect. Then he focused on the politics of the day and he moved it to an economic one. And once that happens, two things happen. By the way, he went with this kind of communist mindset, much like we have here, by the way, socially. And the two things were, who really has the money? If we're all supposed to be equal, they shouldn't have all the money. That was the Jews, so he said, so we shouldn't trust them. And who's really sucking from the dole the most? The gypsy, the handicapped, the needy, the elderly? Well, then we need to get rid of them if we're going to have a healthy economic growth. You see, once you become, remember, you become like your God. And money has no feelings. So be careful. So when God says you're old, it's really not a bad thing at all. The nice thing about it is it tells us that with one of the things that God rewards us with is long life. But the point isn't just to say that he's old. I'm sure at this point Joshua even knows. But he says this, Now Joshua's old, advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old, advanced in years, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. As where we looked in the first chapter of this, chapter 12, and we looked and we came up with this simple truth, and the simple truth is that the lesser must pass. Now we get to this point and we start to see something, and one of the simple points God makes is just because you're old doesn't mean you're finished. Some One thing we certainly read, now of course, again, for most of you, you're like, yeah, whatever, Grandpa, I'm sure I'll get there someday. Maybe not, because you're probably aware there are Christian groups, or, well, they're called Christian groups, I don't know if they are or not, that are telling us this is the end of the world. So if the end of the world does happen tonight, at least you're in church. Isn't that good news? Of course, anyways, we don't have to spend any time on that nonsense. But why is God telling Joshua? Well, it's important to note a couple of things. One is, as God is telling him, just because you're old doesn't mean you're done. God knows full well what's yet to be done, and he also knows that he'll promise, he'll attach a promise of victory to everything. So he starts telling us the land that's yet to be conquered. This is the land that yet remains. All the territory of the Philistines and all of the, the Geshurites from Sichur, which is east of Egypt, which, by the way, we're looking at Saudi Arabia area, as far as the border of Ekron, northward, which is counted as Canaanite, the five lords of the Philistines, Gazaites, Ashdodites, Ashkelonites, the Gittites and the Ekronites, also the Avites, by the way. That is just the Gaza Strip and north of it. Most of you are familiar that that's still a problem and hasn't been conquered. Of course, now, of course, it looks really kind of odd because anytime you start even going near there, the press start talking about how evil you are for it. But let's be honest. If you don't believe in God and they don't believe in the same God of this Bible, then who has a right to the land? 
If God gave it to you and you don't believe it exists, then what right do you have to claim it? You can understand why, how complicated this battle is. From the south, the land of the Canaanites in Merara, that belongs to the Sidonians as far as Effect, and the border of the Amorites, the land of the, Ge- the Gebelites, and all that Lebanon, toward the sunrise. Of course, that is east. From Baal Gad, below Marchemon, as far as the entrance of Hamat. All the inhabitants of the mountains, from Lebanon as far as the brook Mishrapuf, or Mishrapuf, and all the Sidonians. And then God says, Let's listen, them I will drive out, drive out from before the children of Israel, only divided by lot to Israel as an inheritance as I've commanded you. Now therefore, divide this land as an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half tribe of Manasseh. Remember how two and a half tribes are going to be in the east side. Now God's talking west side. But the other half, tribe of the Reubenites and the Gadites, received the inheritance which Moses had given them beyond the Jordan, eastward, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given them. From Aror, which is the bank of the river Amun, and the town that is in the midst of the ravine, and all the plain of Medeba, as far as Dibon, all the cities of Sichon, and this should sound familiar because this is reviewed from the last chapter. King of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, as far as the border of the children of Ammon, Gilead and the border of the Geshurites and the Ma'akatites, Al Marchemon and Al Bashan as far as Sil Asalcha, all of the kingdom of Og of, in Bashan who reigned in Ashtoreth and in Dray, who remained of the remnant of the giants, for Moses had defeated and cast out these. Nevertheless, the children of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Ma'akatites, but the Geshurites and the Ma'akatites dwell among all Israel until this day. Stop. Don't miss this. God had already given a promise about these people back in verse 6. He says, Them I will drive out from before the children of Israel. Divide the land. Let's get going. But God tells us, but. But this didn't happen. And this is the foretaste of the book of Judges. Read the first chapter of Judges. It's not like, hey, God's got all these guys lined up and they're just ready to take the field and deliver Israel. No, it tells us that the problem is the reason Israel needed deliverers was because Israel sold themselves over because they refused to drive out the inhabitants like God told them to. Now, please don't miss this because this is really fundamental because this is the sin we don't normally look at. This is the sin we'd rather avoid. We look at the sin of, well, doing something wrong. You know, we know that we're not supposed to do this, but we did it anyways. That's a pretty obvious one. But what about the sin of doing nothing? The sin of doing nothing at all? Well, that's the sin we're talking about here. Now understand, in your life and in my life, there are places, pockets, where God has a specific blessing in your life. And those blessings need to be claimed. Now, I'm not talking about you stand around and you do a dance on a beanie baby and you do something and you just go and wave some incense and demand something of God. The problem is not demanding of God. The same way that people say faith moves the hand of God. God's hands are already moving. What faith does is empty your hands to take what he wants to give you. There's the problem. It isn't like God's withholding somebody. He's like, you know, if you just asked politely, I'd give it to you. And if you have to, if you have to ask in faith, and I'm, I'm going to be checking to see whether you really trust me, the tr- bottom line is God's like this with his hands out, but our hands are already full of something. And because our hands are already full of something, 
God can't fill that area because it's already full. And you understand what God's showing us with these, these people that haven't been driven out. As there is a blessing in that land, but the problem is that blessing in that land can't happen until the land becomes vacant. Because otherwise, it would be too cramped to be a blessing anyways. Let's face it. If your life is anything like mine, it's pretty darn busy. It gets pretty cramped and pretty crowded rather quick. As a matter of fact, it pretty much looks like a rush hour train often on my calendar, on my diary. And imagine if God wanted to put something right in the middle of that day, in the midst of five different appointments and getting ready for this and that. But it was going to be something that was going to be really beautiful and profound. A moment where God was going to speak to me and change my heart and really move my heart in an area that needed to be changed. But I wouldn't give him the time because I didn't have it. And God's like, what I want is 15 minutes of your time to change you the way you want to be changed. And you're like, God, can you do it in 15 seconds? God says, then it will be cheap, insignificant, and unappreciated. And the problem is, is that what God often has to do in my life, and you can decide if it's yours as well, is God has to lay me out. I mean, genuinely. He has to make me sick. He has to do something. And people go, oh, God would never do that to you. Why wouldn't he? If he's a jealous God and what he wants to be with me. If that's what he really wants, would he do something necessary for that? Now, if what we are married to first and foremost is our comfort and convenience, then you would think God would never do that. But if we're married to first is becoming like Jesus, then this will make a lot of sense. And what God often has to do is like, do you realize that God could spend our entire walk with him could basically be moment after moment of God ripping things out of our life that we're fighting him over that we really shouldn't even want in our life in the first place? He goes, nevertheless... These people didn't drive out people God promised victory over. And you say, you know, I, I struggle with that. Because I know God promised me victory in these areas, but I'm still struggling with them. Are you really willing to do what is necessary to clear it out? It's like a person who has a problem getting drunk, but they won't get rid of all the alcohol in their house. And they just want God to give them supernatural strength. How about God gave them first wisdom to kick, kick out all the alcohol out of their house? You say, well, but that might offend a roommate. Well, then tell the roommate to wise up because you have a problem with it. Humble ourselves. It's amazing how many times, whatever that thing is, how we're like, you know, I just know God's got to do this. Notice it doesn't say here that they were just bigger and meaner and badder and Israel didn't stand a chance. God had already promised victory, but they would not. They did not. That's different. And I know how that works. I've got kids. Where they could pretend like all of a sudden gravity has stuck them and they can't get up and do what they're supposed to, that kind of thing. But I also know that that's my heart too. So nevertheless, this didn't happen. Verse 14 says, Only the tribe of Levi, he had given no inheritance. And I'm going to read past this because I'm going to collect these. There's three of them. But note them when you get there. Only the tribe of Levi gave no inheritance. The sacrifice of the Lord God of Israel made by fire are their inheritance, as he said to them. Now we start moving. Remember that two and a half tribes? Well, now he's going to start talking about the land they get. Moses gave, had given the tribe of the children of Reuben an inheritance according to their families. The territory was from Aror, which is in the bank of the river Ammon, and the city that is in the midst of the ravine, and all the plain by Mediva, Hashbon and all the cities that are in the plain, Dibon, Bamot, Baal, Bet, Baal, Naon, Yechaza, Kilmot, Mephat. Anyone want to live there? 
Misbat. Yeah. It means the house on a cliff, if you will. Kir Hiram. Actually, Kiratayim. Sibma Sereshachar. In the valleys of, in the mountain of the valley. On the mountain of the valley. Beth Peor, the slopes of Pisgah. And Beth Yeshemot. Yeshemot, by the way, Beth Yeshemot means house of desolation. All the cities in the plain and the kingdoms of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, who Moses had struck with the princes of Midian. Evi, Rekham. That's always a fun one. Rekham, by the way, means needlework, like crocheting. Zor and Hur and Reba, who were the princes of Sihon dwelling in the country. The children of Israel also killed by the sword, Belachim, the son of Beor, the soothsayer, among those who were killed by them. Most of you are familiar. That's, if you want to go back and review, that's Numbers 22 through 24, the false, crazy false prophet. And the border of the children of Reuben was the bank of the Jordan. That tells you that's their western border. This was the inheritance of the children of Reuben according to their families, the cities, and their villages. Okay, that's, that's Reuben. Gad, remember two and a half tribes? Here's our second, Gad. Moses had given inheritance to the tribe of Gad, to the children of Gad, according to their families. Their territory was Yetzer, and all the cities of Gilead, and the half uh, of the land of the Amorites, Ammonites, as far as Aror, which is before Rabah, and from Heshbon to Ramat Mizpah and Betanim, and from Machanaim and the border of Devir, and in the valley Bethcharam, Bet Nimrah, Sukkot, and Zaphon. And the rest of the kingdom of Sichon, king of Heshbon, with the, Yor- with the Jordan as its border, as far as the edge of the Sea of Kinneret, that remember, that's the Sea of Galilee, on the other side of the Jordan eastward. This is the inheritance of the children of God according to their families, the cities, and their villages. Now, half-tribe of Manasseh. Moses had given inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh. It was for half the tribe of the children of Manasseh according to their families. Their territory was from Achanaim, Al-Bashan, all the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, and all the towns of Yair, which are in Bashan, 60 cities, half of Gilead, and Ashtoroth, and Adlai, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan, were the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, for half the children of Machir, according to their families. These are the areas which Moses had distributed as an inheritance in the plains of Moab and the other side of Jordan by Jericho eastward. But the tribe of Levi... Moses gave no inheritance. There's our second of those statements. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance, as he said to them. Chapter 14 continues this thought. These are the areas of the children of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eliezer the priest, which, by the way, is, if you remember, that's Aaron's son, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel distributed as an inheritance to them. Their inheritance was by lot, as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses. For, nine, for the nine tribes and the half-tribe. For Moses had given the inheritance to the two tribes and the half-tribe on the other side of the Jordan. That's what we just covered. But to the Levites he had given no inheritance among them. For the children of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and they gave no part to the Levites in the land except cities to dwell in and their common land for their livestock and their property. Well, this is how, kind of how that works. First of all, it's important to note that though we read this, the 12 tribes of Israel, of the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, Israel was a person, not just a land. 
He was originally called Jacob. God gives him the name change after an evening of wrestling with him. And he calls him then like Sarah, which means to contend or to strive or to fight with. El means God, means fights with God. That's what Israel means. We might say struggled with God in one, but the in one really we add to be kind. And he has 12 sons. 12 sons, by the way, from four different women. God doesn't condone it, but that's the way it works. Of those four, one is his favorite. His favorite is a girl named Rachel. Rachel, of the 12, gives him two children. Numbers 11 and 12 of the 12 boys. So though they're numbers 11 and 12 of the 12 boys, because number 11 is the first of this woman, Rachel, Jacob, or Israel, tries to treat him like the firstborn. And the firstborn gets a couple extra benefits. And one of them is he gets a double measure of the inheritance. So what happens is that boy, his name is Joseph, has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So what happens is when Joseph passes off the scene, because it was a double portion, it goes to these two guys. Thus, each gets a portion. Now, if I've lost you, forgive me. The only reason I say that is, when God removed the land promise from Levi, the third son, there was a space left because somebody was removed and thus another had to be brought in. And thus, Joseph's boys were brought in to fill the gap. Does that sound familiar? There were 12. One was pulled out. And somebody came to replace them. Same happened with Jesus' disciples. The only difference is, the one that was pulled out in the Old Testament was for benefit. The one that was pulled out in the New was not. But in both cases, God set it up. Now, hear me in this. So what we read then is we read three different times. Did you notice now, three different times, it tells us that the Levites didn't get land. Remember in the first, we looked at the first primary point of three, which was this, that the lesser must pass. Remember that. Here's our second. The Levite must not possess. Now, Levite, by the way, a levy means attached. So when you read like Levi jeans, that means attached jeans. You would imagine those should be the inventor of the skinny jean under that concept. But he tells us it isn't that they just don't get, they don't get stuff. What he tells us is that God is not a God of nots. He's a God of instead ofs. In chapter 13, verse 14, he tells us what the first of those are, which is this. You're not getting the land like everybody else to own, but rather your inheritance are the sacrifices. Then in chapter 13, verse 33, he says this. You're not getting the land or property to put your name on, but rather the Lord God of Israel is your inheritance. And then in chapter 14, verses 3 and 4, he says that the cities that others dwell in, you don't get land to own, but you get to dwell in cities with their common land for your livestock and for property. So this is what we get. He says there are going to be those that are called out. Now, here's the difference, by the way. In the 12, these people were actually called out for ministry. They were called out for a specific ministry. Though all of Israel, hear me, hear me, all of Israel was called to be a light. All of Israel. Every one of them was called to be a light to the Gentile world around them. They were called to be a magnet to the rest of the world to come to the living God. But amidst the entirety of it, a group of people were called out. And they weren't called out by any of their own personal earnings. They weren't called out because of their own personal merit. They were called out because God's just cool that way. And this is where God shows his brilliance and sovereignty. You should never separate those. God is so smart, he knows what to do and when to do it and how to do it. As if he calls people out to ministry. 
Now, though we're all called to ministry, there will be those that will be called out to vocational ministry, even within us. Though we are all called out to be a light to the world and to be a magnet to a lost world to cry out to the living God, there will be those that will be called out that will be the attached ones. And they are called out to be attached to God, though we are all called out to be attached. They are called out, if you will, to do the work within the building, if you will. Now, that doesn't mean they don't go out and do stuff, too. But he tells us about those particular people that they cannot be caught up in the same things that other people get caught up in. And the reason is because God has a plan for him and it's going to be busy enough as is. So if you're busy buying land and selling land and building property, God says those that are actually called to this kind of service shouldn't be basically trying to take a look at the world and playing Monopoly with it. It isn't about how many hotels you can build and how much property you can gain. Because here's the deal. It isn't just that you don't get inheritance. Your inheritance is God. And because your inheritance is God, you shouldn't be busy trying to become popular in the world, first and foremost, because the bottom line is you're already popular in heaven. Secondly, though, in regards to that, it's like, look at you need to recognize is where the rest of the world's going to spend their entire life striving and fighting to just make sure they pay their bills. And I get that. You have to go even a step beyond that and just trust that I'm going to have to bring it in. He says, you know what you have to live off of? The sacrifices made by fire. So what happens if people have a bad year? Well, they're not the only ones starving, are they? Because they have to bring in for the priests to live, the Levites to live. And can I tell you, that's the most humbling thing I've ever had to deal with. Of all the things I've ever had to deal with, the idea that God has to bring it in, I don't even mind that. The The problem is that God has to bring it in through people. That's the problem. If God just kind of, I woke up and just stuff started falling from the sky, I'd step out of its way and wait for it to finish. But when it comes to people, that's another story. And what God says is, if you're going to be attached to me and going to live this life of ministry like I called you to, you're going to have to let me provide through people. And I don't, I'll be honest, I don't like that. Actually, I don't mind going to work. I don't mind, but this is one thing for sure. If This is the one reason I would mind. If I actually set my hands to something for 40 hours, I wouldn't be able to spend the time with you that I get to. And that would be tragic for me. I wouldn't want to do that and this, if that makes sense. Now, when I was younger, I did. I had three full-time jobs because I loved serving people so much that the rest was just a labor of love. Here, God's put me in a place where I can't even, I'm not legally allowed to. You realize what that means? That means God's like, I know you could set your hands to this, but that would kill you, your family, and the church. So I'm going to tie your hands and your feet and then just make you wait. Any of you like that? But here's the good news. He says, the sacrifice made by fire? Well, actually, that's going to be your inheritance. Well, that's a crazy thought. That means people who delight in God, who offer the sacrifices, Those are the people that are going to be blessing you. Now, it's not manipulation to say, well, then the best thing I can do is get you to fall in love with God. But he says, there is one more. You are going to have land. You just can't own it. You're going to live somewhere. And there's going to be a place for the flock to to take care, to make sure they're taken care of. Don't worry. I'll provide you the kind of land so that the flock can be taken care of. That's my job. Do you realize you're probably you probably could leave the room and I just need to say this for me to hear, if that makes sense. 
But thank you for being there because I probably wouldn't say it if you weren't. But when I look at this building and I'm thankful for it, I know it's like, Lord, put us where you want us to put us. And God's like, look, it, I, it's my job to give you your inheritance because you belong to me. You are attached to me. I'm the one who has to grant you that inheritance. You can't work for it. You can get busy because we've already talked about the sin of not doing something when God tells you to. But that's dealing with the areas of my life where things need to be driven out. Now, look, it, I don't know where you are, whether you're actually called to be in this particular role or not. But I can tell you this. For me, there's nothing like it. There's nothing that I've ever set my hands to that's been more fulfilling. I've never for a moment not loved what I get to do. And there are no doubt crazy moments. In fact, we joke about writing a book called All This and He Pays Me Too. But please understand, if you are called to that kind of life, then you recognize you have to be called to live this kind of life. Your inheritance is in heaven, not here. It's God's job to provide a place for you to be and a place for your flock. That's the idea here when he says, cities that will be dedicated to you and common land for the flocks. He goes, but also, you need to know, you, you can't amass money but rather, you need to trust for that I'm going to provide by people that love me. And while you're at it, you need to recognize that the biggest and the greatest reward is me. Because if you're looking for anything else, you're going to be hurting. Well, let me get back to the stuff that might apply more to you. So it says then in verse 5, As the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did. And they divided the land. So listen, first again was the lesser must pass. The second is the Levite must not possess. Finally. And the Lord commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did, and they divided the land. Now, let's get to that really cool guy to close this. Then the children of, Israel, of Judah, I'm sorry, came to Joshua in Gilgal. I remind you, Gilgal is the place of consecration. And that's where they've set up camp. I love the fact that the camp is set up where they consecrated. And Caleb and the son of Yephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him. Now I remind you, when the, there were 12 spies sent in Numbers 13 and 14, of those, four, of those 12 tribes, or the 12 spies, only two came back with a positive report. Joshua, the leader, and this guy Caleb. Caleb, I remind you, means dog. So these two guys have 40 years of experience of when they wanted to go in the land 40 years ago. They finally get to go in the land. These are the only two that have survived from that generation. So they're the old guys. And it says that this guy, Caleb, the son of Yephun, and the Kenizzite, says to Joshua, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me and Kadesh Barnea. What he said, of course, is you two the only two that are going to go in. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren went up with me, that went up with me, made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. Could you imagine saying that? I wholly followed the Lord my God. And he was serious. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot is trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. He says, hey, Moses agreed too. Now, Behold, 
The Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years. Do the math. How old is he then? He was 40 when they spied out the land. That was 45 years ago. He's 85. Ever since the Lord spoke the word of Moses to Moses, while Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now, here I am this day, 85 years old. And yet, I am as strong this day <coughs> as on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, for going out and for coming in. Now, what would you do if you were Joshua? He kind of, Joshua kind of enters the book of Joshua at about 100. Joshua will leave the book at 110. That's clear. Chapter 24 makes that clear. So he's somewhere about 100 years old, Joshua. He's a centurion. You know, a centurion? Well, anyways. And, but yet, John, but this guy, he's the young whippersnapper, right? He was younger than Joshua. He's now 85, and he's like, I'm 85, man. But I, we saw that. Remember when we saw that land? Remember when we saw that land? I want that land. I want that land. And Moses said I could have it. I haven't forgotten. 45 years ago, I haven't forgotten. Could you imagine remembering something 45 years ago? No, of course you can't. You weren't 45. You weren't around 45 years ago. We could add a couple of you and you weren't around 45 years ago. So you can only postulate. But he's like, I had a promise. And that promise was given to me 45 years ago. Let me ask you, have there been a promise that God has put in your life? But it seems like maybe it isn't going to come to pass now because it's been a while. Has it been 45 years? I wasn't a, I wasn't a Christian 45. I was alive, by the way, 45 years ago. I wasn't very old. But I was alive. I know you're thinking... That can't be. You look so young. Sorry. I had to say it. Someone had to. Anyways. But Joshua's looking here, and I, I love this, because if you were Joshua, and God just said to Joshua, I remind you, hey man, you're old. And there's still so much to be conquered. And you can see Joshua going, well then who's going to conquer it? I'm old. Advanced in years. God even told me that. Would you think, probably my, my buddy Caleb, do you really think he'd be the guy? I love this. Show me a guy like this. But let, let, let me be, actually, let me say it this way. Make me a guy like this. Because, you know, when I remember when I first got saved, I looked to find old, and you've heard this, I looked to find people older in the Lord that I wanted to be like, and I couldn't find it. Because I, I kind of figured... Forgive me for right kind of reasoning through it. I was a brand new baby Christian, still kind of burping the milk, and I was just figuring it out. And I'm like, I would imagine that if somebody knew, somebody walked with God for 10 years more than I did, that's 10 years where they should know God better. And if they know God better, they should, I don't know, be more passionate about Him. They should be more hopeful in Him. They should be more at peace in a trial. They should be more loving because they're becoming more like him. They should be more excited about fellowship. What in the world has happened? What? How did we become like grumpy and cynical and nasty and we're like all scarred up now, right? Why are we scarred up? Because of battles we fought? Do you think Caleb hasn't fought those battles beside Joshua? 
We had 11 chapters of battles that an 80 to 85 year old man just fought. Five years. They got in in 40 years. That means that they've been fighting for five years. You know what's really funny? Do you know how long I've been in London? Five years! And I just love the fact somewhere in this, Caleb looks and he doesn't, he's got, listen, 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 listen. He's got a greater inventory of God's strengths than his weaknesses. Do you see anywhere in this Caleb says, you know, I'm ready to fight, but there's my gout. And you know, the hips are giving out. And you know, the knees are a little weaker than they used to be. And my eyes can't see really well, so make sure everybody that's on our side get behind me so I don't stab them. And those things might even be true. But nowhere in this does Caleb have an inventory of his own personal weaknesses. Or, by the way, his scars. We don't read anywhere that Caleb's going, yeah, but I know I could fight, but I still have that broken rib from the last one, and you know I still kind of, man, what if that's internal bleeding? And you know, I'm always a little bit more cautious now because that guy that hit me from my, think of all of the battles, somewhere in those battles, he had to get hand-to-hand with someone, and a lot of times around. Caleb was not without fighting. Caleb was not without battle. And Caleb fought giants. Here's the difference between Joshua and Caleb. Think this through. This is the difference between Joshua and Caleb and all the rest of the other army. You ready for this? Joshua and Caleb fought with Moses. Which means they took down the giants on the east side. This other group of people, they get raised up to fight once they cross the Jordan. Do you think that through? He's like, I remember when we were younger and we took down giants. My God's a giant slayer. Why in the world should I be afraid of another giant? God takes them down and eats them for breakfast. Because, see, what Joshua was much, or what Caleb seemed to be really clear on, is that it really wasn't his battle to fight. It was, listen, 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 it was God's battle to fight. It was his job to occupy. God, fight the battle, get the land. That's half of it. Because then I have to still go and move. Listen, I need to move in there. There's the problem. God's job is the battle. My job is the resident. God's like, I want to give you victory, but if I give you victory, would you move in there? You're like, God, give me boldness. God says, I don't want to give you boldness for a minute. If I give you that victory, would you move in there and make that your life now? Or would you just say, well, I just, okay, I shared once. Good, we could tick that box. So I don't like just get to the bottom of the rungs when I get to heaven. And this is why Caleb's such a hero to me. Because when I look at an old guy that's like, you know what? There's still fight in me. You know what I have inside of me? Still fight. That's what's still in me. Fight's still in me. And the same God who dropped all of those giants is going to drop this too. Could you, could you let me do this? Would you let me do this? I'm 85, man. Give me the land. Come on. Let me take this battle. Do you know why that's so important? Because as I look around, I'm the old guy here. I'm nothing like 85. But probably to some of you, I might as well be. And I want to be that guy that I never saw when I looked. I was like, you know what? That's not perfect. I mean, Paul died. He was like 67 when he died. He never got a chance to get that much older. But then you have John. John 
died in his hundreds. The Apostle John. And when I look at him and I see that, when did John get revelation? He was on the Isle of Patmos. He was well past 90. When did John write the Gospel of John? Likely roughly the same time. Hey, just because you're old doesn't mean you're done. Now, go ahead and let that ring in your ears if tonight isn't the end of the world and the Lord tarries for another few. But listen, if you haven't seen someone like that, don't complain. Become it. That's my goal. I, again, my body won't be as able to be as passionate as I was when I was younger, but my soul should be more so. I should be more hopeful, more confident, more assured than I've ever been. One of the reasons we moved here was because, to be honest, because we were in such a safe and comfortable place there, I never really got to live by faith anymore. We had all these guys on staff. We had all this money in the bank. Man, if we were hit hardship, I'd be the last guy off. I was the first guy on the lifeboat of the dinghy if the Titanic hit. Here, that's not the case. Every month, we're like, how is this going to pay the bills? God, you're going to have to do something fun. You know, that means that's not just me. That's my wife and children, too. So pray for them. But I, I'm determined to be a Caleb. I want to be a good old dog. I hope you'll be too. So this is how it closes. Verse 12, Now therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there. Anakim, I remind you, that's the standard giant. Industry standard giant. And their cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out as the Lord said. God gave me a promise. This wasn't just Moses' promise. God gave me this promise 45 years ago. And he said, those giants are going down. And you know what I love? is This is a guy that doesn't go, well, leave that for the kids. He says, I want to be able to tell others how God dropped giants in front of me. And I can't do that away from the battle. So take me to the fray. So what did Joshua do? He blessed them. And he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Yephunneh, as an inheritance. Hebron became then, therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Yephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. The name of Hebron was formerly the fourth city, Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. And then the land had rest for more. Look at, here's our last point in all of this. The lesser must pass. The Levite must not, mustn't possess. And the Lord must provide. Maturing in faith should give me greater confidence, not criticism. So listen, as we go to prayer, and let me ask you. When we think of people who didn't wholly follow the Lord, can you think of anyone in Scripture? God actually said, the reason this happened is because he didn't wholly follow the Lord. My mind immediately goes to Solomon. That's what God said. He said, you know, there was a time, man, when Solomon was just hot for me. I mean, he was hot for me. And I said, whatever you want, just give it to me. He goes, whatever you want, I'm yours. Solomon's like, give me wisdom. And, and understand, God's like, hey, that was good. It wasn't best, but it was good. Because you didn't ask for riches. You didn't ask for vengeance on your enemies. You didn't ask for a long life. You asked for wisdom. And understand what Solomon did is, listen, he had a, a very healthy but scared inventory of his own weakness to the job that was set before him. That's Solomon's problem. 
Solomon looked and he says, you don't understand. I get stuck in this position now. My dad's given this position to me and I'm stuck in this position and this is so much bigger than me. I'm way outclassed. I'm, I, I don't have the strength or the know-how or any of that. I am not the guy for this job. I am not. I'm just a kid, man. And that's what Solomon's saying. And God says, well, if you want wisdom, that's great. Then I'll give it to you. But by the way, since you didn't ask for those other things, I'm going to give you those too. But if he had asked his dad that question, anything you want, what would you like? Well, David would have given a different response. Because he would have said, one thing I've desired of you, and that I'll seek after. That I could dwell with you all the days of my life. Could we just be together always? Could we just move in? And I can see why God said David, not Solomon, was a man after his own heart. Solomon would have good moments, but he didn't wholly follow the Lord, and therefore he would die poorly with a heart divided and a kingdom to be divided as a result of it. On the other side of that, David, for all of his mistakes, would die worshiping. And that's important to note. And I want to end well. How about you? I don't want to just end well. I want to end best. I want you to think I'm a brand new Christian, not because of my ignorance, but because of my passion. And I want you to go, man, whatever that guy has, I want it. And I'm going to tell you, well, then for that to happen, we need to wholly follow the Lord. There's no partially following the Lord in anything like that. How many people in Scripture do you read God say, he wholly followed the Lord? Said, Moses said it. I want you to know God said it here. That's what I want. So that if we do live past this night, which I'm anticipating, and I imagine you are too, and they chooses to tarry for long, which that I'm not necessarily expecting, I want to end better than I started. And some of you, you're still starting, so you know how rotten. It'll, e- it'll be easier to forget in a few years. But those things that you struggled, you were like, these are giants, I don't see how they're ever going to go down. And then you're like, whoa, I haven't smoked in a long time. I haven't cussed in a long time. I haven't gotten in a fist fight in a long time. I haven't gotten stoned in so long I forgot what it's like to feel that way until I'm really sick. And by that point when I feel like that, I'm like, I can't believe anyone pays to feel like this. I'm thinking, yeah, but removing all this stuff so I don't do it is half of it. I want to start doing because isn't that the other part? So as we go to prayer, and we've gone through three chapters, as we go to prayer, my prayer, first of all, is that we will let the lesser, the old, die for the new to rise up. Whether that was the old generation and the new to take them to the promised land. Whether that be the old life that somehow we're trying to drag over the cross that doesn't belong there for the new life he wants to give us. That he would free our hands to fill them with his things. Replacing. Remove and replace. And then with that, my prayer is, if God really is calling you to step it up in regards to the ministry, that you do it, whatever that means. But you better do it His way, not yours. And then third, as we kind of look at it here as well, I mean, and I, I love where the Lord has taken us in all of this. That God would take us to this deep and beautiful and rich place now where we would trust Him to provide. And that we would grow and mature in a way that we would want to be that people. 
And others would say, that's what it looks like to get older in Christ better. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this beautiful text. And we recognize in this, Lord, that there are men here that, they're, that what made them heroes was their faith. They trusted. Said so you made the promise, so you have to keep it. I am so thankful for that. And I do pray, Lord, for those right now that are trying to hold on to the past instead of embracing your future. The lesser must pass. Let that. We'd say, well, there were these victories, but they're nothing compared to the great victories you've wrought now in our Yeshua, our Jesus. And so, God, I pray that we would walk that walk trusting you. And here, as we claim and call on you, it's your job to fight. It's our job to reside, to move in. Give us wisdom with that. And for those, Lord, even tonight that you want to call and make clear that you're calling them to step it up and just live that life, make it clear to them. But we recognize in that that there are costs. We can't live a life somewhat attached to the earth, but rather completely attached to heaven and being an ambassador of it for the world around us. Make us such people. But for every one of us, make sure that we make it clear in our hearts that we're all called to be the magnet you call us to. Call us to be. So Lord, remove what keeps us from that. If you're calling us, Lord, to whatever it is, remove what keeps us from it. No matter how scary or dangerous that is, we recognize, Lord, that it will not be about attaching to this world, but rather affecting this world. We recognize we're going to have to live by faith off of people, off the kindness of people. And Lord, that you move, your spirit moves. So Lord, move, Lord, and provide. We trust you in that. And that we trust you will provide that right place for the flocks and for ourselves as well. And it's you who provides anyways. So as we mature, Lord, as we grow in you, as we go through your word, continue to develop us greater in passion, stronger in faith, solid in our confidence, more sure of your word, and more full of grace for each other. And we confess tonight, I know we've not spent much time on the gospel, though we want to say we recognize that Jesus died for our sins and rose again on that third day. And it is in that we see an old life that dies and a new life that is offered. As He died for our sins, that old man dies. And as He rose again, we claim that new life. And we recognize that what You've left for us is a choice to receive that gift. And we openly confess, not because we have to do it over and over, but just for the sake of saying, Lord, we have, we say yes to that gift. We, we thank you for the price paid for us and the new life offered. May that new life be so opposite of our old world, our old life, that we will be amazed at the abundant life, that spirit-filled life you've called us to. 
So make us such people, we pray, as we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.